Thank you, Pastor Adrian, for leading us in service. Indeed, it's so wonderful to see so many familiar faces today, uh, especially uh, those faces whom I have not seen since the start of the circuit breaker. So I'd like to welcome everyone back. So I'd like to thank the brothers from BAS uh, who are serving us today as Psalmers. So praise the Lord, thank God, uh, that we can all come together as one body in Christ to worship the Lord today. So today's sermon is entitled, The, the Final Words of the Faithful. The final words of the faithful, and I'll be preaching from Genesis chapter 48 to 50. And the best way to follow the sermon is to keep your Bibles open as I try to cover as faithfully as I can with God's help. So allow me to look to God in prayer. Shall we pray? Father, we come before you humbly to acknowledge you as our Lord, knowing that we cannot do anything apart from your help. So I pray that may you Help me to preach your words faithfully and help my brothers and sisters in Christ here today to listen to your sermon attentively and may your words work in our hearts to transform us into Christ-likeness. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine with me for a moment that you are about to die. What will your final words to your loved ones be? See, the final words of our loved ones are precious to us. And oftentimes, they have important things to say to us. My dad's final words to me some 19 years ago before he was called home to the Lord was, Jason, please take care of your mother. Because my father loves my mother deeply and he passed on the responsibility of taking care of my mom to me. And this year, at the height of the circuit breaker, my beloved grandmother was called home to the Lord. And her last words to me were, please pray that God will take me home as I'm satisfied with the years that he has given to me and I cannot wait to go home. Her last words to me reveal to me of her faith in, in God that she longs to see the face of her saviour face to face. And she's thankful for the hundred years that God has given to her on earth. And I had the privilege to conduct her funeral. Uh, it is always good to be a pastor. So a person's final words and actions often reveal to us what they hold dear in their lives. And so today we have come to the final three chapters of Genesis. And I thank God that I personally have learned much valuable lessons from the book of Genesis. And so for us to uh, keep up to speed with this book, I will just do a very quick recap of Genesis. Next slide, please. Genesis began with God's good creation. He created the world beautiful and for humanity to live under his good rule. But our ancestors Adam and Eve rejected God and so they got expelled from the Garden of Eden. After that, sin and death comes into the world and humanity live in constant rebellion against God. But God, out of his grace and generosity, he chose one man, Abraham, and made a promise to him and his descendants that he will be their God and they will be his people. He will make them fruitful and multiply, and kings will come from among them. He will bless them with the land of their own, the land of Canaan. And God will bless the nations through them, especially through one of their offspring. 
And this same promise was made to Abraham's descendants, Jacob and Joseph. By the time we come to the end of Genesis, there seems to be only a partial fulfillment of God's promise. Even as the curtain comes down on the lives of Jacob and Joseph, they are about 900 kilometers away from Canaan. Canaan is out of sight. And Jacob and his family has already settled down comfortably in Egypt for the past 17 years. Will they cling on to God's promises? Or would Canaan be just a distant dream away? What will their final words reveal to us? And what important lessons can we learn from them? Let's find out from the final words of Jacob and Joseph. In verse 48, verse 1 and 2, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and set up in bed. When Joseph was told that his father was ill, he rushed over with his two sons to visit his father. Well, that is expected of Joseph, isn't it? But what could motivate Jacob, a sickly dying man, to gather all his strength to sit up in bed? You know, sometimes a dying person may use his dying breath his last breath, to instruct his children on where he keep his valuables or his will or maybe his pin number because he wants to pass down things of great value to the next generation. So here likewise, with Jacob's dying breath, he gathered his strength to sit up in bed to instruct his son Joseph clearly on God's promises so that they too will be the recipient of God's blessings. So first to his favorite son, Joseph, Jacob recounted his encounter with God in the land of Canaan, where he receives God's promise of blessings. In verse 4, And God said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Although God promised the land of Canaan to Jacob and his offspring, Jacob could have easily settled in the land of Egypt instead. After all, he has already been living in Egypt for the past 17 years. And his son, Joseph, is a prime minister of Egypt. Jacob's other sons are also doing well in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And life is good for Jacob and his family. Why rock the boat? Why uproot the entire family to shift back to Canaan, where they face constant hostility from the Canaanites? Maybe God was wrong about Canaan after all. We know of many families from Singapore, they have migrated overseas, uh, perhaps they found a better job, a better opportunity elsewhere. Uh, the kids could have already settled down in school. Uh, school there is, uh, overseas is much better, no need to take Chinese, right? No PSLE, no homework, less stress. They get to enjoy the vast open space, there's work-life balance, and they are never coming back. This is totally understandable. But for Jacob's case, 
his heart was firmly in Canaan. This was not simply a case of missing home. But by faith, Jacob and his forefathers before him saw Canaan as their everlasting possession. Canaan is not just a plot of land. Canaan is tied to God's promises of blessings to them and to their future generation. And so Jacob now wanted Joseph to understand the significance and importance of Canaan. Then Jacob went on to do something that seems rather odd in verse 5 and 6. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. As Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Over here, Jacob adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be his. So now his two grandsons will be considered his sons. Now, why would Jacob do such a thing like that? Well, I believe his intention was to give Joseph a double portion of the inheritance through his two sons. It is the firstborn blessing of double portion of the inheritance. This is to make sure that Joseph now has vested interest in the land of Canaan. To send a message to Joseph that Egypt is not his home. This is a brilliant strategic move by Jacob. In fact, from the entire life of Jacob, the author of the book of Hebrews chose to record this one single act of Jacob to encapsulate his faith in God. So come with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. See, if Joseph and his descendants were to remain in Egypt, then they will surely miss out on God's promised land to them. And to further emphasize the significance of Canaan, Jacob pulled on his son's heartstring. In verse 7 of chapter 48, Jacob recounted to Joseph that his mother, Rachel, died and was buried in Ephrath. Where is Ephrath? Well, Ephrath is in the land of Canaan. And after this, Jacob proceeds to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And like his father Isaac before him, Jacob was now old and blind. And it was deja vu all over again when he gave the firstborn blessing to the younger instead of the elder. Jacob calls on God to bless them with fruitfulness, to grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth as he passes on God's promises to them. And just like that, he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, the younger ahead of the elder. But this time, it was not out of deceit, but openly in front of Joseph. And once again, Canaan comes into, into the picture when Jacob gave Joseph a plot of lamb, land in Shechem, in the land of Canaan. And this time, it was an actual plot of land 
which his two sons, Levi and Simeon, acquire through bloodshed. And you can read the background story in Genesis chapter 34. Now let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves, what kind of parent would be so insistent to uproot their children from a comfortable and secure lifestyle in Egypt and move back to Canaan? Well, Jacob's physical eyes were dim, but his spiritual eyes were in perfect condition. He saw his son's future in God and being part of God's covenant and not in the bright lights of Egypt. God was his treasured possession, and his final words to them was to pass on this everlasting inheritance to them. So what lessons can we learn from the Jacob story? Well, we see that Jacob paved the way for others to know God. Jacob spent his dying breath instructing his sons about God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, don't wait till our final breath to tell our children or others about God because we might not have the opportunity to bid a final farewell to our family. Tell them now about God's goodness and don't just tell them the truth about God. Show them the goodness of God in your life. Show them that Jesus is your most treasured possession. You and I, we have experienced the goodness of God and His faithfulness. So let's pass it on to the next generation. Education cannot guarantee a job and a secure future, especially in uh, this current climate. Wealth cannot last more than three generations, so the Chinese proverb goes. And only God can guide our future generation through their lives long after we are gone, and nothing else can. So where do we see our children's future? Is it in the bright lights of the world or being part of God's promises? So I'd like to encourage all of us, don't just invest in their academic education, you know, sending them for tuition after tuition, but invest in your children's spiritual walk with God. Read the Bible with them. Encourage them to go for children's church via Zoom or come here physically and to attend basic. Encourage them to attend service together as a family. Pave the way for them to receive God's blessings. And I'm not saying that they will automatically become Christians, but you are paving the way for them by showing them the, precious, the preciousness of God and being with God's people. So may God help us to pave the way to Jesus for our families and friends. So next, in Genesis 49, verse 1 to 27, Jacob then turned his attention to his other sons and gave them his final words. Now, what would Jacob say to his other sons? Would he condemn them, not just for plotting to kill his favorite son Joseph and selling him off to slavery, but covering up their murderous plot keeping him in the dark and causing him such immense grief all these years. Well, by faith, Jacob saw his children's future through God's eyes. Jacob didn't give up hope on what, can, what God can do through them. 
So he instructed them to gather together and proceed to bless his other children. In light of God's promises of land, descendants, kingship, and blessings, Jacob foresaw all his sons becoming the 12 tribes of Israel and settling down in the land of Canaan. In fact, chapter 49, verse 28, sums it all up for us. It says, These are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So over here, I will give us a very quick summary of Jacob's blessings, his final words to his 12 sons. It's a long passage, it's poetic. I won't go into every single detail. And the least is not just a prophecy of the future, but also an evaluation of their past actions in light of living as God's chosen people. So to his firstborn son, Reuben, I'd just like to summarize what uh, Jacob had said to Reuben. One word to summarize it, the word is wasted. Why? Because Reuben was the firstborn. He was born with so much blessings and potential as a firstborn. But like Esau, he threw them all away because of his unworthiness. He shamed his father by sleeping with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Next, we see Simeon and Levi. Jacob saw them as being scattered in the land. Why? Because of their violence. They seek revenge, the revenge of the defiling of their sister, Dina, when they went ahead to slaughter Hamon, Shechem, and all the meals in the city for the act of rape against their sister. And so, Jacob condemns them, but yet the condemnation is filled with hope because he sees his, son, his sons settling down in the land of Canaan, scattered through the land. The next son we see is Judah. Jacob saw Judah as ruler in the land. The name Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. So here Jacob said that Judah, your brothers, should praise you. It's a word play. And Jacob also described Judah as a lion, lion of nobility, a leader among his brothers. And so Jacob anticipates from Judah kingship, as he uses words like scepter, ruler staff, and tribute to describe Judah. Especially one from Judah, where to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. One of Judah's descendants will rule forever. And Judah's kingship, his kingdom, will be a prosperous one, flowing, overflowing with grapes. Next, we see Zebulun. Just one word to describe he was settled down in the coastal land. And Issachar, he will find rest in the land. Next. Dan, a word taken of his name, Dan, because it means to judge, to vindicate. So he will be the judge of the land. And for Gad, Gad is seen as the defender of the land as he ward off raiders of the land. Next. For Asher, yes, Asher, take note. Asher 
His food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. There will be fertility in the land. The land will be fertile, seen by the imagery of rich food. And for Naphtali, it's prosperity, as his descendants will be like dough, like beautiful fawns. And we see Joseph, he's, Jacob foresees Joseph as being fruitful, as being a fruitful bow where he, he will be a blessing to others. And here we see in verse 23, it describes how archers attack Joseph, but Joseph did not retaliate. It could be a description of Joseph's past where he was a blessing despite his brother's harsh treatment of him. And here we also see Jacob describing how God helped Joseph to fend off his attackers. God is described as being the mighty one, the shepherd, the stone, the almighty, as Jacob invokes God's blessings to be upon Joseph's head. And finally, for Benjamin, he sees Benjamin as a ravenous wolf, how he will conquer over the enemies of the land. Sorry, typo error. Huh? Conquer over the enemies of the land. Okay, so that's a quick summary of the very long prophecy of uh, Jacob. And so finally, in Genesis chapter 49, verses 28 to 23, Jacob instructed his other sons with regards to his barrier. So before my grandmother passed away, she gave instructions that she wanted her body to be cremated and then scattered into the open sea. Why? Because she didn't want to trouble the family having to visit her and to maintain her niche. While Jacob's final instruction is to be buried in Canaan, sending a clear message to his sons that Egypt is not their home and that their future is in the land of Canaan, living under God. And so just like this, the curtain comes down on Jacob. As God fulfills his faithful promise to him, made in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3 and 4. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So as God promised, Jacob, that his son Joseph will close his eyes. Here we see in chapter 50 that Joseph wept over his father Jacob and gave him a grand sending off. The entire funeral procession had God's favour written all over it. Jacob was embalmed and the whole process took 40 days. And how long is the mourning period for most of our funerals here? So how long is the morning period for our funerals here? Three days? Five days? Jacob's morning period was 70 days, and the Egyptians wept for him. 70 days is only two days shorter than Pharaoh's morning period of 72 days. And Joseph also received Pharaoh's approval to take a long compassionate leave to bury his father in the land of Canaan some 900 kilometers away. In those days, they, don't, they, they didn't have car or planes, 
so that if they were to travel up, it would take a rather long time. And a very great company of dignitaries from Egypt and Jacob's own household ran up for the barrier, accompanied by chariots and horsemen. It's turning out to be a military possession. This is like a state funeral for Jacob. And his descendants will surely remember this grand event for generations to come. And this is a foretaste of what is to come for Jacob's descendants. For one day, they too will travel down this way when God rescued them out of Egypt to Canaan with chariots and horsemen in hot pursuit of them. So moving on to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 to 20, right after Jacob died, Joseph's brothers were fearful of him. See, 17 years have passed since the brothers were reconciled and settled down in Egypt. Why would the fear of Joseph resurface all over again? Did they fear that Joseph might seek revenge on them? Was it a case of their distrust of him? Or did they project themselves unto him that if they were in his shoes, they would seek vengeance right now? In the past, his brothers thought so little of him that they attempted to kill him and sow him off as a slave. But now, after so many years, why did they still think so little of him when their father died? So they sent a message to Joseph, claiming that Jacob wanted him to forgive them. Did Jacob really say that? His brothers also fell down before him, proclaiming to be his slaves. Wow, what is this all about? Aren't they all brothers? Seems like they've never treated Joseph as one of them. Was it out of guilt or awe and act? Guess we will never know. The only thing we know is that their words and actions broke the hearts broke the heart of Jacob, or rather, of Joseph, as Joseph wept. But despite being in a position of power and authority, Joseph replied to them with these famous words in verse 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So what lessons can we learn from Joseph? Well, Joseph saw his power and authority through the eyes of faith. He recognizes that although he's in position of authority, that he has no authority to take matters into his own hands, to seek vengeance, because he's not God. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do we use our God-given authority as employers, as parents, as leaders, for good or for evil? Do we act like gods, like tyrants, against our domestic helpers, under those, those under our charge, or do we recognize that they, they too are created in God's image 
and that there's a God above us, and that we are merely his servants. We also see that Joseph doesn't downplay the evil done to him by his brothers, but he sees his suffering in light of God's goodness. Yes, Joseph suffered their murderous plot and was sold to slavery by their very hands. He faced false accusation and was thrown into prison, locked away and forgotten. These are real sufferings of Joseph. Joseph would have went through sweat and tears and faced countless nights, sleepless nights, trying to figure out what on earth is happening to him. But brothers and sisters in Christ, if we only focus on our suffering, our pain, and on vengeance for the wrong that others have done to us, then life is just that and nothing else. Suffering, pain, and revenge will consume us. Our pain and suffering has no meaning by itself apart from God being in our lives. But Joseph saw that God was with him. It was God who rescued him out of prison and raised him to power. God worked through him to save not just his family, but the nations from the famine. Joseph saw the hands of God working behind the scenes, that his sufferings peeled in comparison to the goodness that God has brought out of it. Through the suffering of Joseph, God brought about the salvation of many. And through the suffering of Joseph, God molded Joseph from an arrogant dreamer into who he is today. God's blessings upon Joseph's life comes in the form of tears and suffering. There's this song I love very much. It's Laura's story. She wrote a beautiful song called Blessings. And one of the verses goes like this. Because if, if I can sing, I would sing, but I will just read the lyrics for us, okay? Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Joseph's blessings come in the form of tears and suffering. But Joseph was blessed to be a blessing. And we see that he didn't return evil with evil, but evil with good. As he assures his brothers that he will provide not just for them, but for their family as well. And we see that although his brothers didn't trust him with their lives, but Joseph trusts them in his death. With these final words in verse 40, 24 to 26. Next slide. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, that's the land of Canaan, to Isaac and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
We see Joseph live to a ripe old age of 110 years old. Even as the curtain falls down on Joseph, being second in command only to Pharaoh, and with his great contributions to Egypt, would surely mean that he will be given a state funeral in honour of him. And the Joseph's legacy will be remembered in Egypt. Now, why would he request his brothers to remove his bones from Egypt to relocate it to Canaan, where his burial site will not be accorded the same honour as Egypt? Why would he want to give up his legacy in Egypt? And the author of the book of Hebrews chose this one single act to highlight Joseph's faith in God. So come with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph didn't see his death as the end of God's promises. For he believed that one day, God will bring the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. God's promise live on. And when that day comes, Joseph wants to be part of that promise. Joseph was willing to give up his legacy in Egypt to be part of God's bigger legacy. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you willing to give up building your own legacy to be part of God's legacy? In fact, we see that Joseph made the right decision because later in the book of Exodus, Joseph and his contribution towards Egypt will quickly be forgotten when a new pharaoh come into power. And so we learn from Joseph that even as our temporal life is drafted into God's plans, our lives become part of something bigger, better, with eternal value to impact the world. So in closing, what did we learn from the final words of Jacob and Joseph? Well, we learned that they both saw God and his promises clearly. Jacob paved the way for his sons to inherit God's promises. He also saw his son's future in light of God's promise. So brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're discouraged, perhaps by how your children is turning out in life, I'd like to encourage you to trust in the faithful God. For you and I have no power, we have no power to change the hearts of our children, but God has. While Joseph saw his suffering in light of God's goodness and willingly gave up his legacy to, to be part of God's. And so, just like that, we have come to the end of the book of Genesis. It is a book of beginnings. The beginning of God paving the way of bringing us back to him. The beginning of God's promises and blessings. The beginning of God working in and through his chosen people to bring about his salvation plan and to bless the nations. And this book ends with great hope and expectation of what God will do next in the book of Exodus. And thank God we are doing the book of Exodus next year. 
As for us, God too has paved the way for us to Himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, please read along with me in your hearts, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jacob and Joseph, together with all the Old Testament saints, encouraged us because they lived by faith. They trusted God and clung on to his promises, even though they could not see the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. His promises. Their lives bear witness to God's faithfulness. Their faith is established on the old covenant, whereas our faith is established on the new, a new covenant, on better promises of Christ alone. See, Jacob and Joseph set their sights on God's promised land, but we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Jacob paves the way for his offspring to enter God's promised land. Jesus paves the way for us to enter into God's presence. Joseph endures suffering to bring about salvation from the famine and trusted God in rescuing them from Egypt. Jesus endures suffering to bring about God's salvation plan to rescue us from sin and hell. Yes, our final words is important, but Jesus' final words is all that matters. And this is our Lord's final words. When he cried out, it is finished on the cross to bring about God's ultimate promise of saving us from our sin. Amen. Let's look to God in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your faithful God who keeps your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that you have worked in the lives of Jacob, Joseph, how you have raised faithful servants by molding them, by transforming them. And we see and learn from their faithfulness from the Bible. And we too are encouraged that we can persevere on in our faith because we can look at them, their lives, to testify that you are indeed a faithful God. And Father, we pray for us as we journey in this life, this life where we will face struggles, suffering, challenges in life. Help us to remain faithful to you by fixing our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, whose final words matters, that he has finished the task that you have entrusted to him to die on a cross that his blood shed redeems us of our sins, his body broken for us, that we can cling on to this promise to enter into heaven to see you face to face. So Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.